Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. Uh, my name is Murray-Louise Ayres, and I'm the Library's Director-General. As we begin this morning, I invite Mr Tyrone Bell to welcome us to his country, and in so doing, I acknowledge that, to, that we are here today on the lands of the Ngunnawal people. I acknowledge Tyrone's forebears as elders, Tyrone himself as elder, and indeed Tyrone's son, Jay, who at just 13 years old clearly shows himself to be an emerging elder when he digitally welcomes guests to the exhibition that draws us together today. And if you haven't seen the exhibition uh, yet, and you'll be able to today, you'll see exactly what I mean. So Tyrone, please welcome us. Thank you. My name is Tyrone Bell. I'm a descendant of the Ngunnawal people, and it's my privilege this morning to welcome you to the country of the Ngunnawal people. To begin with, I would like to let you know that traditional Aboriginal law requires any visitors to the country being made welcome. This customary tradition has been passed on by all our generations. This ritual forms a part of our belief system. Its purpose is for visitors to acknowledge whose country it is, and then in turn being acknowledged as visitors and made welcome. This welcome custom has happened for thousands of years and we use it as protection for country against bad spirits. The country in which you stand today is that of the Ngunnawal people. Being a Ngunnawal traditional custodian, it gives me pleasure to invite you onto the country of my people. Dawa Nuna, Dawa Ngunnawal, Yulamundi, Kambara, Kindalin. In the language of my people means, this is Ngunnawal country, welcome to our meeting place. Enjoy. We call country the mother because as a mother cares for her children, so does the land cares for us. This is why Aboriginal people have such close ties with the land. On behalf of myself and my people, I send a warm welcome to everyone here. I'm proud to be Aboriginal and one of the traditional carers of this land. I want you to feel welcome while on our country. We wish to express our sincere thanks to the organisers for acknowledging that this is Ngunnawal country and for the recognition, respect and common courtesy paid to us by this acknowledgement. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge those that have come to this area for the first time and warmly welcome you. For those who have been here before, welcome back. And of course, for those that live here, please continue to enjoy and behave. <laughs> we want you to feel welcome while visiting Ngunnawal country and ask that you respect the land that we have done so for 60,000 years plus. So in keeping with our Ngunnawal tradition and the true spirit of friendship and reconciliation, treat everyone and everything with dignity and respect. And by doing so, it is our belief your spirit will be harmonised with your stay on our traditional lands. It is our belief that our ancestors will then in turn bless your stay on our country. May the spirit of this land remain with you today, tomorrow and always. Once again, on behalf of the Ngunnawal people, I welcome you to our traditional country. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm very delighted to be at the library on this Saturday morning um, because in less than one hour, Cook in the Pacific will open to the public for the first time. I think I would say I'm delighted and along with some of my colleagues, possibly slightly tired, um, after um, our 400 strong 
um, a throng at our official opening last night, one of our biggest openings uh, ever. But we, we know that when you see the exhibition that you'll understand that it offers a different perspective on Captain James Cook and the rich multifaceted Pacific cultures that he encountered on his three epic voyages. We'll just wait for a moment. Alberta, did you want to come into the front seats here? Okay. This is an exhibition that has required much thought from many here at the library as we consider the light and shade around Cook and his legacy. He's justifiably renowned for his abilities as a scientist, navigator and leader. But for many people, he is also a symbol of great sadness and of the losses that followed in the wake of his voyages. So the exhibition allows us to explore and to reconsider stories from Cook's three remarkable voyages through the Pacific. Stories told through the eyes of Cook and his men, as well as through the vibrant and remarkable voices of the First Nations peoples they encountered. These voices are heard throughout the exhibition. And as Director General of the National Library, I acknowledge the generous contribution of First Nations peoples who have shared their culture, experiences, languages and voices with those who will visit the exhibition. I welcome representatives of those people here today and honour their willingness to join us to continue these conversations and to open our eyes, ears and hearts. I know that this generosity will help us as the nation's library to build stronger connections with the communities whose lives our collections represent. Now this exhibition is a very major undertaking for the National Library and it would not have been possible without the support of individuals, communities, cultural institutions, sponsors and government. We have drawn on our own very rich collection of cook material including the remarkable Endeavour Journal and indeed more than half of what you'll see in the exhibition comes from our own collections. But we're also greatly indebted to domestic and international lending institutions and are pleased to welcome representatives from many of our lenders to discussions today. Exhibitions are one of the key areas in which memory institutions like ourselves collaborate by lending their own precious collections to travel over land and sea. For this exhibition, we are indebted to our Australian colleagues at the National Museum of Australia with its splendid Endeavour Cannon outside the exhibition, the Australian National Maritime Museum with the beautiful Endeavour model, the National Portrait Gallery, the National Gallery of Australia, the Parliament House Art Collection, the State Libraries of Victoria and New South Wales, the Australian Museum, the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney and private loans, including from the Kerry Stokes Collection and Martin Cook Antiques. And from over water, we thank the Alexander Turnbull Library at the National Library of New Zealand, Te Papa, New Zealand's National Museum, the British Library, the National Archives of the United Kingdom, the Royal Museums Greenwich, the Natural History Museum in London, the Captain Cook Memorial Museum at Whitby, at Whitby and the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. So I think you can see the kind of um, uh, collegial work that needs to go on uh, really among a large group of institutions to put on a show that, like this one. 
We also thank the Australian Government for providing very significant funding, including from a package of me uh, measures around the 250th anniversary of the Endeavour voyage and through the National Collecting Institutions during Outreach Program. And it's true to say that we could not have mounted this exhibition without that very generous support from the Australian Government. We're also grateful to the uh, financial and in-kind support provided by our generous exhibition partners, Actuadiel, the Pratt Foundation, the Kenyon Foundation and Foxtel's History Channel. So today I invite you to be surprised, to be informed, challenged and to walk away curious and wanting to know more. Today I invite you to experience the Pacific through the eyes of Cook and the remarkable First Nations peoples that he met. It's been my pleasure to welcome you all to this seminar this morning and I'd now like to introduce Dr Martin Woods, the Library's MAPS curator and co-curator of Cook and the Pacific who will guide us through our first session today. Thanks Martin. Thank you very much, Marie-Louise. And it's a great pleasure to be here um, and to welcome you. And uh, I'd like to thank Tyrone for his welcome and acknowledge Ngunnawal people and elders past and present and emerging. Thank you. Um, it's uh, an impossible task to put on an exhibition like this without the people in the front row. And uh, we, ha we are here to acknowledge those people and, and others, of course, in the library. But it's the lasting bonds that we've developed with you that um, Susanna and I and the rest of the team working on Cook in the Pacific greatly appreciate. So uh, we're going to feature a session um, for uh, the curators from, uh, and conservators from the partner institutions uh, in uh, the UK and uh, in New Zealand. And I'm going to introduce them. So the way that this session is going to work is that I will introduce um, them all together as a group and then we'll go through a series of lightning talks and at the end of that uh, sequence, uh, if you can reserve questions for the end, we'll then have a panel discussion up here um, and then there's morning tea. So it's a good, short, lightning session. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, so the first speaker that I'm going to introduce um, is Laura Walker, uh, co-curator of the recent James Cook, The Pacific, uh, The Voyages at the British Library. Um, and uh, Laura is going to talk on, at, give an outline of British Library's James Cook and the Joseph Banks collections. Then there'll be Andrea Hart, head of special collections, uh, library and archives at the Natural History Museum, London. And she'll be talking about penguins, Parkinson and the Pacific. Then Emily Clues. Um, Emily is looking at conservation science in Captain Cook's Journeys in the Pacific, and she's from the National Archives in the UK. Then Nirmala Balram, uh, conservator ethnographic objects uh, and sculpture at the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa Tongaroa. And uh, Nirmala is going to be talking about unlocking the treasures within the collections at Te Papa. Followed by Mark, the Te Papa's Maori Registrar, and Mark will be giving a Maori perspective on couriering Taonga from Te Papa to the National Library. And then finally, um, Susanna Hellman, co-curator, of course, of Cook and the Pacific, will be talking about the development of our exhibition. So could you please make welcome Laura Walker? Thank you. <laughs> 
um, and thank you for Martin for those kind words and to um, Tyrone for your welcome to country. Um, I am Laura Walker, I am Manuscripts Curator at the British Library and the British Library is the equivalent to the National Library of Australia, we are the National Library of the UK um, and I thought I'd give you a few quick facts about the library just to give you a bit of an introduction. Um, so we receive a copy of every publication produced in the UK and Ireland. Um, we have three million new items added every year to the collections. Um, and the collection now contains well over 150 million um, items, including 386,765 manuscripts and 4,581,222 maps, so quite a lot. Um, and we have roughly about 16,000 people who use the collections either online or on site um, in one day. And the pictures you can see are our brick building there um, and the King's Tower, which is, um, contains the library of King George III and is, is just a beautiful structure in the middle of the space. So, I don't know that a lot of people know that we have very significant cook collections, which is one of the reasons we decided to do our exhibition. But before I talk about a little bit about that, um, I thought I'd show a few highlights um, from our collections. And we have, well, three main types of material. We have journals and logbooks, um, we have charts, and we also have artworks. So from our logbook and journal collections, we have Cook's journals from the second and third voyages, um, as well as, which is one, well, the one, at the, the one at the top is from the second uh, voyage journal, which shows the crossing of the Antarctic Circle. Um, he was the first uh, captain to cross the Antarctic Circle and did so three times on the second voyage. Um, and the, the bottom right-hand corner is the third uh, voyage journal. Uh, the one on the left is an extract from Cook's logbook, uh, and it only really covers a very short um, period of time. But interestingly enough, it uh, records the landing at Stingray Harbour, what he called Stingray Harbour, which was later renamed Botany Bay. Um, and it includes, yes, a very slightly underwhelming description of the landing that happened there in a very kind of... Um, not, not to kind of reflect the legacy of what happened afterwards. Um, so why do we have the journals? Um, well, basically, they were part of Cook's collections. Um, they passed to his wife after his death, and then they went from her to her family, all of her children predeceasing her. Um, they went to her cousin, Admiral Isaac Smith, who interestingly went on the first and second voyage with uh, Cook, and Cook made sure he was the first person to step off the boat when they landed at Watney Bay. So they went um, by him, and then to his, um, to Captain John Smith, and through his descendants, and eventually they were sold at auction in 1868, um, which is when the library bought them, and they became part of our collections. So it's quite interesting that the family um, died out, and they didn't continue. Um, so, those are the, the logbooks and journals. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, we also have a wonderful collection of charts um, for the first and second voyages. Uh, in particular, there's some really, in particular really from the first voyage, ones by Cook himself, um, showing different stages of the process. So, both these um, show Botany Bay. You can see the kind of 
changes from the, the original to the, to the later version being coloured. Um, and we also have ones showing the east coast of Australia. Um, I've kind of highlighted a little section there which shows um, the area Cook called Endeavour River. Uh, you can just about see, probably not <laughs> from this distance, but if you do look closely, there's, um, it marks where the ship got stuck on the Great Barrier Reef um, and lay for 23 hours where they chucked the cannons and everything else overboard uh, in order to try and uh, refloat it. But the, the, most of our charts were also um, bought at auction, which is how they came into the collection. So, so artwork. Um, we have probably the most significant collection of first voyage artwork, ethnographic artwork, I should say. We don't have uh, the natural history artwork, which Andrea will talk about later on. Um, but most of this was part of Banks's collection. Um, Banks was the naturalist on the voyage, and he employed the two artists, um, Alexander Buchan and Sidney Parkinson. Uh, we have the surviving artwork by Buchan in the collection, but as he died in Tahiti, it really only covers Tierra del Fuego and Rio de Janeiro. Um, Parkinson, after Buchan's death, really took on um, drawing the landscapes and the people that they met. Uh, and we have really beautiful collections from Tahiti and New Zealand. Um, but here I've shown, um, which is in the exhibition, so you can go and see it um, as well. Well, both of these are. Uh, Sydney Parkinson's sketchbook, which is this very faint pencil drawing here. Um, and it shows two men um, from Botany Bay uh, with the spear and some canoes. And it's... Pretty, pretty unique from Parkinson. He really only made this, this one drawing. He was so busy drawing the um, botanical specimens, the natural history that they saw, um, that he didn't have time, really, at this point in the voyage to do, to do more in the terms of kind of drawing like he'd done in New Zealand and Tahiti. Um, the other drawing which I've um, chosen to show you is also in the exhibition, um, and it was drawn back in London. Um, it was drawn by John Frederick Miller, who... Um, basically drew a lot of the um, plant specimens once they got back, but also the artifacts. Um, and it shows the shield, one of the shields um, that were brought back from the voyage. So the other really exciting collection that we have um, is Tupai's artwork. We have all eight of his drawings, um, from the one which you'll see again in the exhibition, which shows, um, and was actually Sam Neill's one of his highlights from last night um, of the two canoes from Botany Bay there, which is probably one of the most requested and most loaned items in our collection. Um, really, our collections from my department I work in, Modern Manuscripts, these are the most popular um, for going out, for being displayed, um, and no doubt will continue to be so with the anniversaries continue for another 10 years or so. Um, but here is a range of some of the, um, the artworks from um, Tupaya, who was a high priest and navigator, um, and joined the voyage at Tahiti. And the one on the far, on the left, shows um, Joseph Banks exchanging a crayfish with a Maori. Um, and it's that idea that you've got somebody um, from Tahiti, from Polynesia, um, drawing 
somebody from New Zealand, a Maori from New Zealand, and an English uh, gentleman in banks, that kind of cross-cultural idea, that exchange. And it was only in the 1990s that um, Tupai was identified as the artist of these works. Uh, an academic was searching through correspondence in um, the Fitzwilliam and discovered this letter which described this actual painting, which is why um, we know that these are all by Tupia. Um, the other three um, artworks show scenes in, in the Society Islands in Tahiti. Uh, the chart is actually, wasn't drawn by Tupia, but contains information of 70 islands that he'd given to Cook and to the officers. Um, and it's still being interpreted today. People don't exactly know why um, parts have been plotted as they have. Um, it's thought it's possibly um, sailing navigational directions from one island to another, how you would um, resupply, reprovision on the way, um, which I think is the most likely um, argument. So we basically um, knew we had the collections. We knew that a lot of people didn't know that we have had these, um, and they hadn't really had much done to them since the 19th century when they came in. Um, and so we really started to think, what, what should we be doing? Um, you can see on the right-hand side, um, that's our catalogue, our manuscript catalogue, and that was the entry we had um, for our Weber drawings from the third voyage. And that's it. That's, you know, not very much information uh, for people to be able to find and look at um, the material that we have. So we've started on a, a programme of cataloguing conservation and the digitisation of our collections so that every single artwork will have its own record in the catalogue so that people will be able to find and look for them. But also that they will be conserved for future generations and digitised. So the, um, the image on the right shows our digitised manuscripts viewer. Um, and we have now digitised the journals, which are online for free um, via our website. And we are in the process of getting the artwork and charts online. Um, we thought the anniversary was a very good way of um, getting the funding to do this, uh, getting the library to agree. Um, and so hopefully um, by the end of the year, more should be up and will continue to, to go up so that people can see these in high definition um, from around the world. So our exhibition just ended about a month before um, this one opened. So it's been quite a quick turnaround to get a lot of the items from us out to Australia. Um, but our idea in putting on the exhibition was really to look at the voyages through the original documents curated on them, that um, we wanted to go back to the source material. So much about Cook has kind of been um, reinterpreted over the years. He's become this symbol. And so we wanted to go back to the start. And in parallel, um, we showed films in the gallery which looked at perspectives from the people on the shore, from the communities affected, and the legacy that followed. So we're kind of using a comparison between the original artwork and these contemporary films. So this is a very brief um, tour of the exhibition from the introduction. Um, Banks's study, which took over an idea about the ideas of the Enlightenment um, that Cook, Banks, and the others took with them, what, what were their perceptions before going out, and how, how they changed during the voyages. Um, we had our islands um, in which we displayed um, the artworks and we borrowed some objects and other material. This was Tahiti. Um, and then we had a, a room for each voyage. So first voyage, um, this is second voyage where we had our Antarctic island. 
the third voyage um, where we followed both the return of Mai to the Pacific and then um, the voyage to find the Northwest Passage, which of course um, Cook didn't do. Um, so thank you very much. It's a very brief overview of our collections and the exhibition. Um, and just to say that there is a website on the exhibition that um, includes a number of perspectives that we couldn't fit into, um, into our exhibition, but also from our engagement. So um, if you search James Cook, the Voyages, that will come up. So, good morning. I'm Andrea. I'm from the Natural History Museum. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Tyrone, for the welcome. Um, so, I am here to talk about penguins, Parkinson, and the Pacific. Here we go. So, the Natural History Museum in London is home to some of the most incredible and important natural history collections in the world. In our main hall, where Charles Darwin and Richard Owen statues once had a standoff, um, we have to make do with a selfie with me and Richard Owen this morning. Um, and where our cast of a diplodocus named Dippy once stood, there is now suspended from the still girl is a complete skeleton of a blue whale. This 25.2 metre skeleton not only represents the largest species on Earth, but named Hope, she is a symbol of humanity's power to shape a sustainable future. Blue whales being hunted to the brink of extinction in the 20th century, but became one of the first species that humans decided to save on a global scale. To achieve this, this required knowledge, and it was a desire for knowledge that drove the young Joseph Banks, but not looking quite so young here, to join Cook on board the Endeavour that set sail in August 1768. As we know, all of Cook's voyages of discovery provided people with unprecedented information about the Pacific Ocean and about those who lived on its islands and shores. The voyages also set new standards and became benchmarks against how later expeditions were measured, whilst playing an important role for botany and zoology. Preserved in the library at the museum are the natural history artworks and illustrations from all three of Cook's voyages, all there because of Joseph Banks, and with those from the Endeavour voyage being some of our most iconic. Accompanied by the last, the vast, even, number of natural history specimens, and in particular botanical ones, that were collected during the voyage, they together provide a tangible link with the past and the history of science, whilst enabling modern discoveries to be put into a historical context. Cook's expeditions were the first to appoint artists as a part of a scientific initiative to study the natural history of places visited and the new societies and material cultures encountered. Their artworks were also the first to be systematically compiled in significant quantities as opposed to selective assortments of subjects, this especially being true at the first and second voyages. So I've promised you penguins. Um, and of course, none would have been observed during the Endeavour voyage, so I shall start with the second voyage and the artworks of Georg Forster, from whom Banks purchased the artworks, although many also returned with the Forsters to their native Germany. Banks had wanted to sail on the second voyage, but due to arguments about arrangements on board the HMS Resolution, he didn't. There's a couple more, I hope. They haven't come out too long. Um, it was therefore Johann Forster and his son, uh, or he sailed as naturalist, and his 17-year-old son, Georg, who sailed on the voyage. Oh, no, go back. Can I go back? Previous. There we go. 
stick on the penguin for a bit longer. Um, they were also to describe 800 botanical specimens. Now we can go forward. Can we? Yes, okay. Um, but as you can see, um, these ones are some of the finished watercolours that we have in the collection by um, Georg. Here we go. Um, but the majority um, of the botanical ones tend to be slightly less significant um, flowers and plants, um, and a lot of them pen and ink as well. But more significantly were the, um, the, the animals, um, and they were to describe and illustrate 38 new species of birds, as well as many fishes and animals as well. So here are some of the completed illustrations that Georg um, finished. Um, ungulate here. And then you've also got a seal, a ray, a flying fish that is flying quite nicely on the screen there. Um, a tortoise, many birds, jellyfish, and a vole. And we'll come to this in a second. So the resolution, um, as Laura had said, was the first ship to sail across the Antarctic Circle on the 17th of January, 1773, following four grueling months in ice, penguins, wind, and fog. Journeying further south than any previous voyage, the Forsters also recorded for the first time um, birds such as this petrel and other oceanic birds. It was Banks, though, who recognised the painstaking and voluminous research that the Forsters undertook and went to considerable effort to facilitate the publication of the records and results of the voyage, despite not having had published his own from the endeavour. Their publications, which integrated their discoveries and observations into a more holistic and undoubtedly more modern understanding of natural history, were well received, resulting in Forster being admitted to the Royal Society at the age of just 22. His ideas and personality are also said to have influenced fellow German Alexander von Humboldt. However, he died at the age of 40 following a short illness. One more penguin. Whilst the authorities had appreciated the value of taking trained artists on board for the second voyage, issues between Cook and the Forsters meant that Cook chose not to take any naturalists on the third voyage, although John Weber, as Laura has said, was taken as the official artist to paint landscapes, portraits, and coastal views. The NHM has just one illustration of Weber's, that of Pringlea antiscorbutica, or the Kerguelen Island cabbage, the edible plant discovered by the ship's surgeon William Anderson during the Christmas of 1776, where they spent um, time on the island prior to, prior to sailing to New Zealand. The subject um, is of note, as with the high levels of fatalities associated with sea travel at the time, its high levels of potassium and the vitamin C-rich oil in its leaves meant its consumption greatly helped those suffering from scurvy, hence its species name, Antiscorbutica, which means against scurvy, scurvy even. And um, what you'll also see is that the close-up, he actually drew a little ant on the leaf as well, which I hadn't actually realised until we put it into our own exhibition back home in the Images of Nature Gallery. The lack of appointed artist significantly reduced the output of natural history illustrations on this voyage. Those that were undertaken were carried out by Anderson, who had sailed on the second voyage as surgeon's mate, during which time he had been trained by Johann Forster and William Ellis. Ellis produced illustrations, or Ellis, uh, the majority, the majority of illustrations even, um, that were predominantly animal studies and in particular birds. He presented those to Joseph Banks following a recommendation from Charles Clark to Banks. So what we have in this collection um, is an assortment of birds. You can see that they're not really in the scientific 
style of illustration, you've also got um, a wood stump there and a little bit of a, a scenery. He drew some penguins. Um, and then also birds. These, all these four, as you'll see, are in the process of eating. You've got insects um, and then also a fish. He also drew fish. And also this rather interesting happy bird um, with a very interesting perspective. I can't really make out if that's its rear or its front there. Um, but as you'll also see on this, but you probably won't be able to, in the, in the corner there it does say ad vivum delin ent pigs, which meant that he drew it for life. And this particular one is dated 1778. Tragically, Ellis died from falling from a mast in Ostend in Belgium shortly before he was to, about to join the scientific team of an Austrian expedition to the Pacific. He was just 34 years of age. So we have Ellis who failed to make his voyage, um, whilst this wonderful man, the young Sidney Parkinson, um, tragically failed to come home from his, one, his voyage, of course, being the Endeavour. Parkinson was not the only voyage to sail on the Endeavour, as Laura has said, um, as there was also Alexandra Buchan, employed as topographer and figure painter, and also Herman Sporing, who stepped up in his capacity of secretary following Buchan's death less than a year into the voyage. These are Buchan's cockroaches, which would have probably been rife on the boat. Um, and then also here is Sporing's illustration of a ray, which hasn't come out very well on this screen, but if you would like to see the original, it's downstairs in the exhibition. Similar to Parkinson, Sporing never made it home from the voyage, as he also died shortly after leaving Batavia. Parkinson is probably best known for the ethnographic and landscape illustrations that, once again, Laura has said, uh, preserved at the, um, the British Library, which were used to illustrate both his posthumous account of the voyage, but also create the official account of the voyage, although he wasn't given credit for those illustrations. He did, however, produce over 1,200 illustrations of plants and animals during the voyage, 955 of which were preliminary sketches and 377 finished. So what's absolutely lovely about this collection, um, especially with his finished watercolours, is you can trace the map of the landfalls of the voyage. So here we have Madeira, Brazil, Tierra del Fuego, and then the Society Islands and New Zealand. With Banks's natural history interests and concerns focused on botany, this determined the emphasis of the collecting throughout the voyage. He and Solander highlighted the new or noteworthy specimens for illustration and then ensured Parkinson paid attention to the anatomical or morphological features that would allow the subject to be identified according to the Linnaean system of classification. However, oh, I forgot to do this one. Um, so this is rather lovely as well because these are all the invertebrates and birds that would have been um, either shot by Park uh, or by Banks when he went out rowing in his boat when they were at sea. Um, and you've got some fish, crabs, um, there's a wonderful jellyfish there as well, but also some partly finished as well. The grey bird um, at the top does have some pencil legs, but unfortunately um, it hasn't come through on this slide either. Right, now we're back to here. Um, so with increased pressure on Parkinson following Buchan's death in 1769 on Tahiti and a heightened volume of collecting in New Zealand and Australia, Parkinson made outline drawings with colour references for completion at a later time. So here on the, uh, your left, you've got the, uh, the sketch outline and on the right is the, the finished watercolour that was completed on the voyage's return. So in the gallery as well, you've got um, a sketch of the Grevillea and the finished watercolour by um, Miller. 
But as time is short and probably even shorter, um, I'm not going to go into detail about those. Um, there are copper plates. There is a copper plate of the Gravillia in the exhibition as well. Um, but I would like to just very quickly finish with some of the, um, the artworks that Parkinson completed prior to um, going on the endeavour, which I think um, really do demonstrate his incredible artistic ability. He was masterful in his use of gouache, on, especially on vellum, um, and he shared his talent by teaching uh, the London nurseryman James Lee's daughter, Anne. It was James Lee who um, nominated then Parkinson to Banks to take on board the endeavour. So the, the drawings that we have back home, these are two from Richard Owen's um, drawings collection. And then we also have a wonderful volume of, as I say, gouache on vellums that Parkinson um, carried out. There are three in the library, or at least three in the library here, um, which I had the enormous pleasure of being shown um, just a few days ago. So Parkinson died from dysentery on the final leg of the voyage shortly after its departure from Batavia in his 26th year. There is no doubt that his output of drawings represent an outstanding graphic record of the natural history of the Endeavour voyage, which share the scientific importance of the specimen collections along with Salander's descriptions. One can only wonder how much more he would have achieved had he survived. Hi everyone, I am Emily from the National Archives and I'm going to attempt to take you on a whirlwind tour of what we are cooking <coughs> sorry, at the National Archives and Conservation and um, show you uh, the initial tests we carried out on Cook's, well, a cop our copy of Cook's journal from the Endeavour. So this is me uh, hard at work. I, uh, I'm a paper conservator and work specifically in loans and exhibitions. I did not, however, work on this one, so I hope I'll do justice to my colleagues' work. Um, but you can see an example of what I do in terms of conservation treatments. I do also a lot of admins. You will know how much work is involved in organizing these loans. Uh, here I am, for example, consolidating um, flaking gouache because we were worried it would not withstand vibrations during transport. Um, this is a bit of a side note because uh, I am also a great <laughs> contemporary aficionado and when I saw the imagery that was used in the invitations here and the illustrations of the exhibition, I immediately thought of this uh, Lisa Rihanna work I saw at the last Venice Biennale, and she reinterpreted this 1804 tapestry by French artist, well, sorry, wallpaper, uh, by French artist Joseph Dufour, um, which he titled The Savages of the Pacific Sea. Um, she is a Maori artist, uh, so she did this video where she tries to break those historical stereotypes and reinterpret imperialist views. I really encourage you to look it up. It triggers really interesting points of view and conversations. So this is my colleague Jacqueline Moon, who is uh, our photographs conservator. And uh, she is currently working on understanding why and how photographs yellow and fade, more specifically uh, gelatin and silver prints. Many experts attribute color change uh, to specific causes, such as humidity, which leads to yellowing, or pollutants, which lead to 
the photographs uh, having this red-brown hue. Um, and of course, processing is also a major cause of damage. Um, you can see here, um, under magnification, an example of a poorly processed uh, silver filament. Uh, she is essentially trying to see if we could use color, so color charts, to determine the degree of degradation and the cause of degradation of photographs, which would mean uh, we could uh, not, we could avoid doing destructive tests. So this is currently going on in the lab. She is also hoping these charts she's devising um, will potentially be used by people who are not experts and who have their own collections and things like that. So here is our lovely mummified rat. Um, he is sort of uh, an interesting piece because he's what um, led to the creation of the public record office, which is now the National Archives, because he was found eating, well, he was found mummified but still had pieces of parchment in his belly. Uh, so everyone thought maybe it's time to take better care of our collection and avoid rodents. So we keep him as a reminder of that. Um, so this photo is to show that we've recently received from our lovely friends of the archives a 3D printer. Um, we are hoping to use it for facsimiles, so handling sessions. We do a lot of things with schools, uh, but also create to create housing that would perfectly match the shapes of complicated objects such, such as the rat, um, and potentially 3D print missing fragments of 3D objects. Um, our lovely conservation scientist is also currently working on wax seals. She is evaluating all sorts of um, adhesives that have been used historically and determine their efficiency um, it's a great collaboration, and here's an example of the very complicated things she does, and I don't fully understand. Um, here, X-ray tomography, uh, which shows all the layers in a wax seal. Um, the little shiny bits are metal inclusions, so she's trying to see what we could um, what sympathetic adhesive we could use to consolidate those layers that sometimes separate. So now on to Cook. Um, our copy of the Endeavour Journal was accessioned by the Admiralty in the UK, which is why it belongs to the government. It uh, briefly disappeared. We do not know why, but it resurfaced in the Public Record Office, so we're very glad to still have that. Um, it's the most complete copy because it incorporated all the um, um, annotations and corrections that were done in the original log. Um, and interestingly, you can see the National Library of Australia's copy and ours side by side for the first time since 1771 uh, here in this exhibition. So it's very exciting. Um, so some of the tests that have been carried out were on what the paper is made of. Here my colleague Jackie Moon has extracted some samples and sort of isolated paper fibers and has looked at them under the microscope. 
Here you can see that the ridges and the fibers um, indicate that it is flax or linen. So it's very good quality paper, a mix of linen and cotton, um, handmade, of course. Um, as you can see here, it's lead paper because you can see the chain lines, which show how the paper was made in a mold with wires. Um, you machine-made paper of the 20th century would not have lasted this well because it degrades much quicker. So this is a great example of do use great quality paper. It makes a difference. Uh, we have also found two uh, watermarks uh, throughout the journal, and those help um, knowing who produced this paper. In this case, as you see, the Propatria on the right indicates a London stationer. So we also identified two types of inks used in this journal, uh, who which, by the way, is written by the hand of Richard Orton. Uh, the main one being typically iron gold ink, very typical of the period, which is made of iron oak golds, ferrous sulfate, and gum and water. You can see an example here. So it, um, this brown, dark brown color is uh, very typical of that type of ink and how it degrades. So the more we've also found those red inks in very different hues, uh, as you can see on the left, most of them are heavily degraded. Um, so we wanted to identify what they were, um, of course, out of scientific interest, but also to see if we could slow down this uh, fading. Uh, tests show that they are organic dyes, uh, possibly cochineal, or Brazil wood, and because they're organic, uh, this explains why they fade so quickly and are so light sensitive. They're much less fast than a pigment like vermilion, for example. Um, so here we see an example of our microfading test on the right. Uh, here you can see my lovely colleague Solange, who's actually worked on the conservation of what we've lent to the National Library of Australia. And she has analyzed those greasy, oily stains we found throughout the journal, and it indicates how they were, in what conditions they were writing those journals. So uh, we found traces of beeswax and of Japan wax, so possibly beef grease or whale grease they would have molded into candles. Um, here are an examples of those tests, um, the highlighted bits sort of show the, the equivalent of the fingerprints of the molecules we found. So you can see, yeah, beeswax and um, Japan wax. Um, our PhD student from University College London has also come in and done some work on the Cook documents. Uh, interestingly, she is developing a new method to study acidity uh, non-destructively in paper um, because paper is made of, is a polymer made of very long chains 
of molecules and with age they get cut up and degrade. Um, she is trying with this math model and this probe you can see to um, determine the, the degree of acidity of the paper without having to take a sample. So uh, watch that space, it's an interesting work. We have also carried out multispectral imagery on the Cook journals. Um, so they take several images in different, in infrared, visible light and UV, and by super, superposing them and sort of playing a bit with the computer, they highlight different um, details, not necessarily visible to the naked eye, such as areas that have been repaired in the upper right corner of the blue image, or water damage, and um, it is mainly used, for example, in burned documents or documents you cannot open um, to make the ink pop out and possibly read what is not otherwise readable. So those are my lovely colleagues who worked on the Cook project, so thanks to all of them, and uh, please do contact us if you have any questions. We look forward to working more on those documents and um, seeing what the National Library of Australia or other institutions who have Cook documents find out about them. Thank you very much. In a manner, in, excuse me. In a manner, in a reo, in a rangatirama, tena koto katoa. Yalam Mundi, Tyron, and all the other greetings of the Aboriginal people in Australia. Ko Nirmala Toku Inao, he Katia Kitanga, Aho Kite Te Papa Tongarewa, Museum of New Zealand. Can you hear me? Yeah. To those responsible, to the many voices present here, and to the many chiefs, Tyrone, gathered here, warm Pacific greetings to you all. Talofa, Lava, Malo Eli, Nisambula Vinaka. My name is Nirmala Balram. I am a Kaitiaki, a guardian and a conservator of Taonga from the Pacific Islands and Maori collections. My whakapapa, my wanch, is from originally from India through Fiji to New Zealand. And I'd like to say a little karakia. Namaste, Nisambula. Om Burbuasit Tatsavidur Varenium, Pargo Devasa Dimahi, Dioyona Pracho Dayat. Greetings to you all. Today I'm talking about unlocking the treasures at Tepapa, a conservation perspective that is different from the norm. The technical side has its place at Papa, 
but we also have the, the spiritual and the cultural side. And these two go hand in hand at Tipapa. Sorry, I'm trying to do it. Okay. Now, Tipapa believes in a principle called Manatanga. Manatanga means sharing all conservation decisions with the various communities that are present in New Zealand and the Pacific. And today, we're thinking about extending that principle to all of Tipapa's collections, including art artwork. I'd like to quote two leading protagonists at Tipapa who believe in this. Arapata Hakiwai, who is our kaihotu, or co-leader of Te Papa, says, Manatanga is a recognition of the power of Tanga to complete, com communicate deep truths about our people. Tanga are the treasures, or what you may know as collection items. Victoria Essen says, working in partnership with communities to empower them to care for their collections of significance is rewarding and challenging. The critical success factor of any project is the support of our conservator colleagues who understand the need to work with communities rather than impose practice that is non-sustainable. This principle, as I said earlier, is very much part of Te Papa's way of working with our collections. It's very satisfying for all of us and it brings in a lot of conversations and learning while we do sharing of learning. Manatanga principle has long signaled that the National Museum no longer has unilateral right to determine how a tanga is presented, stored, or conserved. In the practical sense, Manatanga provides tribes and communities with the right to determine how affiliated Taonga within Tapapa collections need to be cared for and manage in accordance with the Tikanga, Tikanga meaning the cultural protocols and customs. These rights will continue to exist at Tapapa for those Taonga that are held in our collections as well as those that are out in the communities. Sharing conservation decisions. As I said earlier again, tools to generate information for management as well as for empowering local communities. Conservatives need to create and hand over knowledge, power to the community who will then make decisions and sustain a project. This is very important because the often conservatives are found to be working in isolation, imposing decisions, thinking they are talking to the communities, but they're not really doing that. It's, uh, so it's very important and it's something that we have incorporated in our working life at Tipapa. I'm just going to follow up with a few photos and and talk to, I mean, I've got a, I have a 
graph here, it talks about the role of conservation in a diagrammatic way. You can see that there is, um, every object is born, as one might say, at Te Papa, and then they die. What we do as conservators is enhance their life, lengthen their life like someone for someone who goes to the hospital and gets treated for a terminal Ill illness or something. And what we're adding is quality of life, quality of physical, physical well-being, as well as the wairua, or the spiritual well-being. And at Te Papa, this is something, again, that is very, very much part of our work. I have a few photos to sh just show you about you know, the range, the breadth, and the width, and things that we are involved in with at Te Papa. We work, a good example is the figure on the left. It's a, it's a, it's a taonga that was, that is a t displayed at Te Papa, but was found in another little museum. And we, as a team, went, Mark, myself, went over and treated that object on the scene Trusting the locals who were present there who may not be qualified conservators, but empowering them that when they have other objects, they're able to work with them. And the picture in the middle is actually at the Fiji Museum, where the only original remaining waka remains of that type in the world. What we felt was that they do not have a conservator. However, it was important for us to make them feel they can do the work. And so Te Papa sent a team of, uh, from the conservation department to Fiji to make sure that we empower the locals staff there. The picture on the left is from the Chatham Islands. Um, it's about two hours flight away from our museum. And they are, they're from a tribe called the Moriori. Now we help the Moriori preserve their living Taonga. This is Taonga that is out in the field and uh, a difficult job, but trees are dying. We bring them in and we treat them, make sure that they are looked after culturally, sensitively, out in the island itself. Again, a very difficult job for a conservator where there's no laboratory facilities and there's no, not much of equipment and materials, but we make sure we do the best we can. So conserving with limited resources out there, off the bench, out of the laboratory is very important for Te Papa. and intangible versus tangible. There's a lot of intangible knowledge and tanga or treasures that we have in New Zealand and the Pacific that we are very conscious of and we try to collect, help with, and conserve in a special way. There's me sitting under the canoe talking to um, a cultural owner, Amatanisau, getting his ideas, his, what he believes is right for us to do, was very, very important for us to do. We do the same at Te Papa. 
I'm, unfortunately, my computer system didn't work too well. <laughs> so I'm missing some key photos, but where I was trying to show how we bring in the cultural owners on a regular basis to talk to us, to tell us what they want, their, how they want their tanga to be looked after. It is not 100% for preservation. We accept certain amount of risks and allow certain amount of deterioration in order to make sure that the cultural owners are connected to their, their treasures. You see a group of people meeting, talking about you know, what's to be done with the canoe, and then other groups talking about, and finally the team at the bottom deciding what was the next step. Here we are in the field talking with dock workers regarding objects that will be finally brought into the museum for treatment. Working out in the field again in a shed, in a shed that's dirty, dusty, and yet achieving some amount of good results. We ended up with a shipping container. I'll end up with this. Uh, a shipping container was the best option we had for, for storing these logs that had carvings on them. And there was a meeting where there were a lot of um, people and so it could be, you know, a meeting like this and we'd ask you all to come in and give you a hand, give us a hand. And that made people feel better, empowered and want to help. And one of the ladies sitting there was, one would say, a chief of chiefly and, uh, and she was able to get a lot of help for me. Kiora, thank you very much for listening. And yeah, that was my little talk on uh, conservation from a different perspective. Thank you. Morning, everyone. I'm just going to take a couple of minutes to set up my notes here, and and then we can go from there. Just need to log out. Right, let's have a look. Kia ora everyone, my name's Mark Sykes. Um, I'm going to be talking about Kurinau Taonga Māori and Pacific collections from Te Papa. Um, I'm going to start how I traditionally start my work every day, which is with karakia, which is a prayer, and to give thanks to our um, Tyrone and Jorfano for welcoming us onto your uh, whenua. And um, so I'll start with my karakia. And this photograph is 
We call them our whare tūpuna, which is where I connect to back at home. I can be anywhere in the world like I am here, but my spiritual home is here. So, Mati Mahano, te kaho o te rangi, me te wāreo nā tūpuna, tātoe manaki, tātoe tiaki, ina wakatoa. Ka tohu au ki te toa nuku, ka tohu au ki te toa rangi, i tipu ihu ko nā pū, nā weu, nā more, nā pūkenga, nā wānanga, nā tauera. Tēnei te roa te rapa nō te takitaki i te āhuru nō nā rangi tū, āā. Whakai ki a rite, uhi, wero, haere mai te mauri, haumi e, hui e, tai ki e. So, ko taruera te maonga, ko te arua te waka, ko te awa o te atua te awa, ko rangi ohia te wharitupana, ko ngāti rangi tihi te iwi, ko Mark Sykes tōku ingoa. This photo I have up here is of my wharitupana, which is my family home. Um, and in this photograph are my whānau, which form the basis of my life, but also forms the basis of my work that um, helps me create, do the work that I do every day, connecting with the taonga. So welcome to um, everyone um, and to our kaiwhakahaere uh, um, and all the people in this room, but also my colleagues here from around the world, <coughs> who we've all come together for one kaupapa, and one reason, which is the Cook um, exhibition that we have here. As you will know, in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there are different aspects and different thinkings around his um, exploration of our lands. Um, and today we're still coming to terms with a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the results of that uh, contact of those times. So my next is just a wee glossary of words I'm going to be using in the next 10 minutes. Numera has touched on a lot of these, so uh, for Taonga, um, is a treasure, highly prized, and um, could be an object, could be a word, could be actually whānau or a natural resource, uh, but Taonga is that word that encompasses a lot of those. Kaitiaki, as um, Numera has, has used and seen, is like a guardian or a trustee. So my role is Kaitiaki Collection Manager Taonga, and it means that I guard around those, those treasures, and as Numla has done with hers. And I've got whakapapa, that, um, which is our genealogical links. So it's like my time from Mairanō, or way before, um, to where I am now. And you'll hear me hearing these words, using these words, and the other one is whānau, of course, which for us is our family, and which is the core of my, our business. So here we have... Just the, the photos of the tonga that we brought out here. On the le uh, left is the funeral costume that came from the Society Islands. Cook collected this in uh, his second voyage um, from, the, as I said, the Society Islands. It isn't a complete um, outfit, actually, but it's, I think it's important to know that um, at this stage, Sean Mellon is the uh, senior curator of Pacific, who has gave me these photos and a bit of the corridor around around this, um, this especially this taonga here. So it was used in a ceremony when someone died in a village. They would down this around and go around and scare people. Actually, basically, it's what it was. So apparently, Cook collected ten on his journeys around the world, and fortunately, um, it was purchased by Joseph Banks, and and finally it was donated to the New Zealand government by Sir Lord 
Oswald in 1912, so it's been in our collection. The second photo, the one in the middle, uh, is the tattooing tools, or tattoo, which is the um, Pacific word for the actual uh, doing of the tattooing. Um, and then the one on the right, which is the reason why I'm here. This is the Wahaika. Um, and as I think it's got it up there, it's, it's called a, a fighting club. Now, to break down that word, waha is mouth and ika is fish. So it's wahika. So it's go out, find, seek, and consume. So if you look at that taonga in that aspect, it takes on a whole another, another meaning. And you can see it's a beautiful example, one by the fakairo or the carvings that are on it, which would be the ones in the middle, down the middle of, it, of the taonga, would be the kaitiaki or the guardians of that, of that, um, of this beautiful taonga here. But I'm going to talk more of that in when we go on. So these are the two kaupapa that I'm going to talk about briefly today because I've only got 10 minutes and you can't stop a Māori talking. They can talk and talk and talk. So I'll have to keep that really basic as you find out in our backer house too as we have. Now, being a kaitake for Māori and Indigenous taonga collections and how this influences our practice. The connection with taonga is much more than a physical experience. There are many layers of mātauranga, or knowledge, connected with the taonga, as the example of, this, of the wahiika that I showed you before. It's like, who did it belong to? What name was it given? Because that's how we named all our taonga. And where did it originate? What work did it do? Who came in contact with it? When working with taonga, these are the spiritual and cultural connections that need to be acknowledged for and cared for as much as the physical. When curing these taonga, we ensure the physical safety of the taonga using expertise in conservation, nesting, appropriate packing method for the travel. All this is done in conjunction with the appropriate cultural requirements. Some taonga are required to be packed separately from others due to the sensitivity of what the material is, its past history or and its use. As kaitiaki in our collections at Te Papa, it is our role to inform those of these others of these requirements, our colleagues who work. The, um, on, once everything is finished and before departing on our journey, we are joined by all those that have worked on the loan. So that's the conservators, the mount makers, the um, crate builders, the packers. We're all joined um, at the end and we get in our kaumata, or our elders, as we do, to bless not only the taonga, but also us for a safe spiritual and physical journey. This is the part that um, is quite hard to describe when you're, when you're looking after a taonga, and the physicality of it is quite simple to see. It's that spiritual and cultural level of understanding that we have to be, as kaitiaki, in uh, all the museums around the world, having people of their own looking after their taonga. And it's that part that we hopefully, we do, we do it at Te Papa, we're very fortunate, and not a lot of people can do that. So um, by working in museums and other institutions, we can help guide and inform our colleagues on these practices that we observe. So the importance of our taonga being cared for by Kaitaki Indigenous whānau is important. So working with our people and museum practice, providing access to their taonga held in our collection. I sometimes call this walking the two wheels of museology. 
We have museology practice, which I have a master's in museum practice. I've got you know, art degrees. And then it becomes, you become a Māori collection manager. And that all changes. You can throw that degree or whatever you've got out the window because you're dealing with people then and you're dealing with taonga. So in our rooms, or our whare taonga, which is the rooms that we call where our taonga are kept, incidentally we have 134,000 plus Māori objects, uh, taonga in our collection, and we have, one of the, we have the largest collection of textiles and Māori cloaks. So I just thought I'd put that in there. We have four kaitiaki that I acknowledge here. One's just, uh, one of our, my colleagues has just come back from setting up an exhibition in London, so we travel quite a bit. So those two worlds I talk about is we can close the door into the whare taonga and we walk into our world. We walk out again and we walk into the museum world. So the processes that we have to bring together and to be able to make things happen for our iwi. For kaitaki collection managers as myself, it is our priority to provide access to our people to be able to connect with the collection. As an example, we hold taonga that provenance uh, that have iwi provenance or belong to an iwi. They are able to request this taonga and to be uplifted and taken out with them. So at the moment we're going through a lot of our treaty settlements with the government. So taonga that belong to a lot of our iwi are taken from our collection uh, with loan documents, with trustees involved, with conservation involved and with us. So they come in, the iwi, uplift the taonga and take them to the settlement hui which is sitting them out on the table. So in an essence, they've taken their tūpuna, all their ancestors, back to them, back to the table, signing all these agreements that we are doing. The other example that I can use is if a descendant of a taonga dies or passes on. They come in and take the taonga. We, we organise it for it. They have um, a proper case that we carry them. They come in and lift this, uplift these taonga. They are then laid on the tūpāpaku, which is the body of the person, and laid over the top of them. So all in all, all these connections, and I talk about whakapapa and genealogical um, connections, and our tūpuna, which are our ancestors, are there on that day with their people. And so in our collection, we have a lot of these, a lot of these taonga. So that's our working with our, um, with our um, iwi. That is one example. Um, any taonga that like we were using, we've used today, we go back to the people. We go back to the owners, we go back to the iwi to get their permission to do this. The Māori collection is our most accessed collection in Te Papa by researchers Fano, Hapu and Iwi. So these taonga are still informing today the mātauranga and the knowledge that are in them. Um, finally, whakamutunga, which is our conclusion. I hope I've demonstrated some of the importance of Indigenous people caring for their own taonga, um, the importance of building relationships with our communities and enabling these communities to access collections. And by the way, Kuris are awesome people. So um, please, at question time, don't be afraid to ask, because I think there's a conversation that needs to be spoken about, and especially about museological practices within an Indigenous background. Kia ora. Hello everybody, 
Welcome. Um, thank you very much, Tyrone, for your welcome. And thank you also to our couriers. It's been a dream come true, actually, to listen to you all at once, and especially after you've worked so hard for us this week. I've called my 10 minutes, many options, one exhibition, as I thought these words best encapsulated the dilemma we faced when choosing works from our own collection for the exhibition. I think it's well known that the National Library of Australia holds strong collections relating to Cook and his voyages. And these aren't just the almost 90 at, um, items catalogued as portraits. <laughs> Here are some. <laughs> Um, Cook is obviously a collection strength of the library and long has been. In selecting library objects for the exhibition, we wanted to make sure our very best materials, some of which hadn't been displayed before, had their time in the sun, so to speak. And so when we embarked on creating this exhibition, doing justice to our own collections was really important. It's very easy when making a wish list of loans from far and wide to get carried away, and I think we did and we were very successful. Um, it's very easy to overlook though what's right in front of you. It made sense to start from our collections themselves when actually conceiving the exhi exhibition. We drew on the collective knowledge and insight of staff reference groups, curators and indigenous staff. We listened, absorbed, and recalibrated as we selected objects for our exhibition. It was a giant puzzle. Our collections also determined the shape and scope of the exhibition from the start to some extent. For example, our pictorial records are strong for the second and third voyages of Cook, but not for the first voyage. It made sense to us to cover all three voyages for this reason. We have very little pictorial material um, from the Endeavour voyage, but we do have a series of manuscripts, including Cook's Endeavour journal, uh, Cook's letter book from the Endeavour voyage, copies of incoming and outgoing correspondence. It's this that has the copy of the secret instructions. So today I want to do two things. To give you an overview of the library's collections relating to the Cook voyages, as I know them, and to take you through how they're reflected in the exhibition, particularly how we've paired them up with loan material. So, just uh, some of our strengths. So this is MS1, um, Cook's Endeavour Journal in his own handwriting. It was bought for the nation in 1923. This is um, Cook's letterbook, which has the secret instructions in it. Um, it's in the handwriting of Richard Orton, whose work you saw um, in the journal from the National Archives. This is MS6, which as far as I know, um, well, I haven't seen it displayed at the library since I've been here. Um, it's his letter book for the second and third voyage. Um, it's also in the hands of his clerks. Um, one thing I didn't realise actually is it has the secret instructions for the second voyage, which makes really interesting reading. We've just had this digitised as well, so you can um, better explore these collections. We have it open to a page in which there's a list of the things taken on the second voyage with which to trade, like adzes, axes, hats, cloth, nails and medals. We have a collection of Banks papers. Um, there are about 300 documents in them. Some of them were purchased by Edward Arthur Petherick at the Braben 
auction at Sotheby's in London in 1886. Petherick's is one of the great foundation collections of the library. As many of you know, Petherick was the London agent of the bookseller Angus and Robertson in the late 19th century. You'll see several highlights in the exhibition from that collection, the hints of the Earl of Morton, the president of the Royal Society, to the men of the Endeavour, the gentlemen aboard, um, as well as Cook, um, and the catalogue of John Weber's works, um, which is fantastic, and the lists of presents for Omai, oh and you'll see that on the screen now. We have a collection of papers of the Earl of Sandwich. Um, they're smaller in size than the Banks papers, but they're likewise significant. The Earl of Sandwich was the first Lord of the Admiralty during the period of Cook's voyages, and the library purchased lots at auction. In the exhibition, they're represented by a letter from the naturalist Danes Barrington, um, which is a letter um, dated um, from um, the 3rd of October, 1780. We've also got a letter from Cook to Sandwich um, from the Cape of Good Hope conveying Mai's um, regards to um, the Earl of Sandwich. They were on their way back taking Mai to the Pacific. Um, we've also got a letter from James Harris, who is ambassador to Catherine the Great, um, conveying Catherine the Great's reaction to the news of Cook's death. And here it is now. Um, we also have Thomas Pennant's manuscript, and in that we have the working notes of the naturalist, and he was... Um, he received specimens basically from the Endeavour voyage. He continued to add to it. In the exhibition, we have this page about, um, it's got a, a wolf. And um, I'll just read a little quotation. It's very likely that it's probably a dingo. It doesn't mention any stripes, so it would have been interesting if it was a Tasmanian tiger, but yeah. Um, the voyagers saw in New South Wales the track of, e of um, um, in which they which they suspect to be wolves. Dampier's people saw here two or three beasts like wolves, lean as skeletons, perhaps the same whose footsteps were now seen. Topia, or he calls it Tobia, once made a report of having seen an animal which he compared to a large lean dog. We also have James Burney's journal. Um, Burney's journal dates from 1772 to 3. Um, he was a lieutenant on the adventure. He says that he kept his journal for his family, which of course included his sister, the novelist Fanny Burney, and the, his father, the musicologist and collector Charles Burney. Our collections of pictures are also very strong, and here on the screen I've got all the 10 that you'll see in the exhibition. We have 18 of them, and these are the others. We have works by Weber. Um, this is a Padua, which um, we share with the National Gallery of Australia in the Rexnan and Cavell collection. We've also um, got works of his from Nootka Sound, this um, lovely seat and wash drawing. A woman of Kanchatka. Also a winter habitation at Kamchatka. We also have works by William Ellis, and these are really lovely. This, actually, it was sort of in the course of this exhibition that I really came to love these. Um, this is at Tahiti, at Adventure Bay, 
also at Nootka. Then just to end the works of art with a bird, um, we have this by Moses Griffith, who is actually the servant to Thomas Pennant, who we met before. This is a bird that um, was very likely to Pyre's bird, um, kept as a pet, um, brought back to England. We can also trace through the collection how anniversaries have passed and how public feeling has changed over time in relation to Cook. So we had 1938, 1970, 1988. Then we can also look at how Cook is so well known. Um, <laughs> opportunities for sending him up are, um, are there. <laughs> Here's one of two in the exhibition. And this is my favourite on the front wall. Um, to conclude, I want to draw out some connections be we've made between our collections and what we've chosen to borrow. It's incredibly rewarding to see our collections in that broader context. And here are some of, some of the highlights of this coming together of collections from across the world. So as um, Emily mentioned, we've brought together Cook's um, Endeavour Journal with the version in Richard Orton's hand that was handed into the Admiralty at the end of the Endeavour voyage. We've brought together Cook's major manuscripts in his own handwriting from all three of his Pacific voyages, and these we've borrowed from the British Library, and um, voyages two and three. We've also got Cook's last log as well, um, and also um, other things that we have in the exhibition, obviously, are um, the muster book, and we also have the official log as well. Then from the State Library of New South Wales, we've borrowed this lovely sort of humble piece of paper in which basically Cook records the obs his observations of the transit of Venus. Then we've got our own um, edition of the Philosophical Transactions, which was the written up version published by the Royal Society. We had a lovely little watercolor of a costume design by um, Philippe Jacques de Lauferberg for the pantomime Oh My. So um, it made sense, why not um, <laughs> ask to Papa for their um, wonderful chief mourner's costume. And also um, we have a lovely pen and ink um, drawing of how it might have been used in the Society Islands, and that's come to us from the Kerry Stokes collection. Here we had this lovely little um, drawing of a Maori man by Hodges on the right. Um, we've paired that up in the exhibition with the map, which um, art historians um, believed that our little drawing was a study for the figure on the left. This map comes to us from the National Archives in the UK. Then we have this painting by George Carter in our own collection, so why not go for the dagger <laughs> from Honolulu. Here, um, we had a good collection of material relating to Omai, Mai, who um, travelled with the voyagers back to England after the second voyage. We have this portrait that was done in London by the great portraitist Sir Joshua Reynolds, um, another costume design from the pantomime. So we borrowed this on the right. These um, basically are props from the pantomime, and this comes to us from the Alexander Turnbull Library. 
then. Um, we had a lovely um, pen, ink and wash drawing by John Elliott, um, who was on um, the second voyage. We borrowed the memoirs from the British Library in which he has this wonderful list. Um, have a good look at it if you can see it. Um, and it really is fantastic. It's got a list of all the people from the voyage and his character assessments. He gets them, some of the ages wrong, but he, you know, it's full of humour. He talks about people liking the grog and things like that, his own opinions on them. As sober, brave, humane, he calls Cook. So that was really all I wanted to say. Um, it's been incredibly rewarding both to make these connections between our rich collections and those from around Australia and around the world, and, and in turn provide this new look at Cook. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Susanna, very much. And uh, would you please um, uh, thank all the speakers. I'd like to invite them all um, to have a chair. Um, and we're going to ask them some questions. So please um, come up and uh, share some time with the audience. We're running horribly late, uh, about 15 minutes or so. Um, and rather than uh, us go on with what we've already talked to you about, we'd like to hear some questions from you. So perhaps as we're um, settling down, um, have a think about a question or two. I've got some, um, but perhaps you have. Uh, there's a microphone here, and uh, just raise your hand and we'll direct the question your way. Thank you. Thank you very much to the speakers uh, this morning thus far. I'm sure the rest of the day will be fine too. My question is to Laura. Um, with respect to all the official documents which appear not to be in official hands, but ended up like in Cook's family and whatnot. What was the rules back in those days? Were there copies made or what's the story? Because it just seems a bit strange to me that that, that, that would happen even back in those days. Yes, it is um, slightly strange. I think it does vary. Um, I mean, I think what happened was that there was an official copy that went to the National Archives um, and then it appears that... that a lot of the other copies. I mean, I think this is something that kind of does, um, has been investigated, but I still think there's a bit of confusion about um, which copy was which, because um, Cook did rewrite several times a number of them, um, and one copy did seem to go to the Admiralty, but then it seemed like Mrs. Cook was allowed to keep the rest of them. Um, the official log, which is in the exhibition, came through Joseph Banks, so he seemed to be allowed to have kept that um, and a lot of our collection also was bequeathed by him um, to the British Museum which then split into the Natural History Museum, British Library, um, etc. But yes, I mean we, we, it's still fairly unclear. Our provenance records aren't the best for some of the items. Um, we have charts in the collections which were given to us by the Admiralty which seems a bit strange when they should really be probably at the National Archives but we're not, not going to give them back. <laughs> Would anyone else like to comment on that? Perhaps the National Archives. Well, I think... It's okay. It is? Okay. Um, well, I think Laura said um, 
what was important that always one copy would always uh, be kept by the government or in this case the admiralty um, which is why we have the official copies but I, sus I suppose people who wrote the manuscripts would have kept their initial notes um, so yeah I suspect this was disseminated as it belonged to different people and then we kept the official rewritten copy for the government. Do we have another question? Hello and thank you to all the speakers. It's been very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask Mark a question about the lending of the Taongi to community. Uh, what length of period are you lending them for or are they... Um, uh, yes, what, is, what length are they? Short term, long term, permanent loan, uh, etc.? The example that I used, um, it could be for two days, it can be for three days. It depends on what the um, what they are wanting the tonga for. And as I mentioned, with, with a funeral or a tangi or for signing, it can go out for two or three days. Uh, lending out to the community goes through loans and acquisitions, of course. Um, and then it becomes an official process. But we put in place, with, especially with our communities and with iwi, just this easier way of accessing their tonga without having to go through a whole lot of paperwork to do it. So these have been set up in a certain way of loaning. Um, and um, so that's how we do that. It's, it's something that's very simple, got trustees, we look after it. And once it walks onto a marae or anywhere it goes, it gets taken out of our hands. So I can walk in there wearing gloves, which I don't normally, walk in there wearing gloves and they take it off you and it becomes theirs. And your museum, as I was talking before, and with conservation, that goes out the window. It's just, it becomes theirs because that's whose tonga it is. Just over there. Would one of you please describe the difference between a log and a journal? What's a log an official record and a journal a personal record? So, um, a, log, a log was an official record um, and a journal was an official record, but there were private journals and all written material was then submitted to the Admiralty at the end of the voyage. So, in a sense, they were all official. Um, and there's been various controversies about this. Of course, things were handed back to people. Things were then published at certain times um, without permission from the, the Navy um, at, and at later times. Um, but the log itself provided the necessary instructions for sailing, whereas the journal was to um, record the, um, the remarkable occurrences of the day. There's a question right here. Is the, is the log digitised? That's my question. Is the log digitised? <coughs> which, which log? The Endeavour log. Who's got the Endeavour log? The, my, oh, sorry, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it has been digitised. Uh, I'm not sure if it's accessible yet, but if it's not, it, it should be. Most of the journals are up. Um, 
so it should be there on uh, through the British Library site, um, digitised manuscripts, all through the catalogue. There's a there's a link there, um, but if not, it will be up shortly. But yes, it's been digitised. Marie over there. Thank you. I'm finding this fascinating. Um, my question, which might be a bit of an innocent one because I'm not remotely um, informed or expert, is whether there is currently or whether there is during this anniversary period the intention to develop, and you could do it digitally now, a complete, um, well, a complete um, uh, website, I guess, of all of the material that is associated with the three Cook voyages. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a, a slight it confusion like there a very good which idea to me. To answer that question, but there is an intention to do exactly as you suggest, and you've got a very well-informed question there, Marie. Um, but the government has um, uh, uh, budgeted for uh, a certain amount of funds for the National Library, I forget the exact figure, um, to build a digital platform. And we're in the process, through this exhibition, we've digitised much of the materials in the collection, but we're also in the process of working out a plan to reach out to other communities so that we digitise not only materials relating to Cook and Australia, but Cook and the Pacific. And uh, at the moment, that strategy has not fully been developed, but it's um, one we are working on as we work towards 2020, which is what the funding was essentially all about. Question here, John. It's, it's, is that on? Yeah. Uh, it's more really a, a further to the question previously. Um, the internet is absolutely wonderful and various things are, are appearing worldwide. And one of the, there's a, in Britain, there's a thing called Coral, C-O-R-R-A-L. And from there you can read online the journals and logs of about, I think there's about 30 of them covering Cook's three voyages. And so you can see the whole document. Uh, well worth investigating. And then there also is a thing that, uh, I forget the, the name of it, but sort of cookbooks online. And that gives you all the things like uh, the, the written up versions that got published. So Cook and King's narrative of the third voyage, the uh, Cook's narrative of the second voyage. They're all up on the internet now if you just have to dig around. No. Um, the library actually had a wonderful project um, some years ago called the Australian Joint Copying Project and um, staff from, it was in collaboration I think with the State Library of New South Wales and we have a wonderful microfilm collection which we've used extensively for this exhibition so we could work out which page openings we wanted but basically we have copies here at the library on microfilm of um, many of the material particularly relating to the Endeavour voyage. So, um, and I know that there are plans to make that available digitally next year. So, yeah, it's a wonderful resource. Um. I've noticed that um, the, I've noticed the, um, um, the two different 
ways of um, um, through the Pacific to the uh, New Zealand and um, the way of um, cataloging and it's it's a living it's a living museum whereas all the stuff with Cook and the journals and stuff it's it's there on paper um, but you know how do you make that relevant to people today is the link that's missing um, but with the um, New Zealand Museum it's something that is still living and I'm just wondering that when 2020 comes, is this going to be the official 2020 exhibition or is it going to be better, it, it's going to contain a lot more of that living history um, and um, the, that living cultural history where, and um, because it's all interlinked but there's such a big difference in, um, in the conservation and the presentation and the pre preservation of th those two histories. Does that make sense? It makes sense. <laughs> it makes very good sense to me, Alberta. Uh, I was asked a question yesterday by a journalist who said, um, that's all very well um, about having described the exhibition, but if you held the Cook exhibition in 50 years, what would it look like? And it made me think in those terms immediately that we could be a much more integrated um, form of exhibition rather than works on paper, um, journals, um, objects interpreted. And I'm just wondering whether the panel has any thoughts about where Cook might go. Well, I found it a difficult question too, I have to say. Mark, have you got any ideas? Um, I, I think, you, you know, you're acknowledging how, how our Tonga and our collections and how our communities are the key, key to why these Tonga are still alive today or still live as they do. And that word Modi, I, the Modi that I use, is something that's innate in everything. It's like those journals that Cook, that all those guys have written. When I, when I look at those, I, I don't think of, well, lovely to have his writing. It's... You know, what happened to that person? Where's that pen? Um, what were his thoughts while he was writing all of these, these things? It's those layers that are behind those journals or those taonga or whatever it is that, um, that are on display. I don't know if you remember in 1985, Papa did an exhibition, or New Zealand did an exhibition called um, um, uh, Went Overseas to, um, to Māori. And it was the first time that our Tonga had left the shores of uh, Aotearoa. So they went over to America and Chicago. And each time it went and moved from an exhibition, we took all the tribes over, we took all the iwi over, we took all the kaumatu to shift it. Because you're not only shifting the Tonga, you're shifting the spirit. And you're shifting the, that, that essence that's within each of those Tonga. So that was the catalyst now for why we have Māori kaitaki in museums. It is because they saw that need for people who have that to do it. So with the Cook Journals or with this Cook Collection that is touring around all these Tonga that we've sent overseas from Te Papa to London to, so that people can engage in it. And I hope they engage in it in that sense, that it's a living thing. They're not just an innate object. Thank you. I'd like to add... 
I'd like to add. I'd like to add that you know it follows on to conservation. We do not take any activities on specific Taonga until we have spoken to the iwi and looked at the different layers. You know, the technical side is there, which we talk about with them, and but without the conversation and without understanding the depth of the different layers, we will not do any conservation treatment. And it keeps them involved, keeps them feeling that this, this object, this tanga is alive and well, and we are the ones that keep it well with their help, but not on our own. Can I, sorry, can I just add something very quickly? Um, I mean, we came from a place of complete ignorance before starting our exhibition. We hadn't really worked. Um, we had slightly with our West Africa exhibition, but worked with kind of community groups. And I think in 50 years, things will change because we will have learnt a lot more. We'll have learnt... Mm. Um, you know, we, we took a lot of advice. Um, we have a very large Maori community in London, very strong group who came and gave advice about how we should be displaying um, a lot of the artwork and the journals. And they came and they, they um, carried out a blessing before the exhibition was opened. And I think, you know, it's just that, you know, for us, it's kind of learning um, about the way we should be looking after and um, presenting these objects. So I think in 50 years, things will have changed quite a lot but it's it's kind of you know beginning that process yes and um i think if you tyrone wanted to come over to london and have a look at our materials maybe that could trigger trigger conversation we have not had or even thought of yet and um, maybe people like you could add layers to the materials we have um, so i think yeah in the future more collaborations. It's all about uh, partnering, um, partnering up with uh, um, different people and that. Mm. And of course, um, you just don't know what's out there. And look, I've been involved in culture heritage out in the field for over 30 years. so. I've seen a lot of our um, artefacts out on country. I've seen a lot of them um, put away into um, storage and that and um, go missing. Um, I'm big on um, conservation too and all that because I believe to protect and preserve our culture for the next generations, not just as like Ngunnawal, Ngunnawal people, but also for everyone to educate people um, about our rich culture in our past, but also I think about our future too. So there's like a, a lot of layers, what Mark was um, saying and all that. Um, what, you know, it's, it's like when I took Professor Brian Cox out um, to interpret the star system. He kept on asking me about the scientific point of view. I said, look, um, yeah, I can teach you the cultural values and that, but you know, you gotta marry them together. And it's about us from a cultural point of view learning the scientific point of view and vice versa. But honestly thinking that um, there's a change now on that, probably in the last uh, five years and that, where everyone wants to know about um, indigenous cultures, not just here in Australia, but around the world. And we all start, all, all of us need to start working together on that to um, make this happen. So. Uh, hello. In relation to uh, 
what Alberta was saying, the question of 2020 and it making those pieces of paper come alive, perhaps uh, you could investigate the audio side of that. What's, what I've always found remarkable about the, uh, the journals of Cook and Banks and Parkinson is just what an amazing read they are and how they capture like no other author can do the spirit of adventure and discovery that is written into them. With actors uh, reenacting those voices, I don't think you can come closer to their living being than by doing the audio. In this, in this time of podcasts and, and all the audio th uh, stuff that we all now all listen to, uh, although radio has dropped out of sight, we, we've still got podcasts. And what an actor can do with a good script shouldn't be overlooked. Do we have any other questions? Yes, Loretta. That's what we like, left field questions, Loretta, please. Well, it is relating to a person on Cook's Voyage, and that's Salanda. And I was just wondering if anybody knows if there was a journal that was written by Salanda. It would be really fascinating. I know he was very busy. But James, what's his name, Mr Banks, <laughs> he had lots of time to um, write his journal, which was very comprehensive. But did Solander have one? Parkinson even had time to write his. He did. Oh, I'm, I am alive. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think if there was, it would be probably in Sweden, obviously where Solander came from. Um, at the museum, we have all of his... Um, descriptions, his plant descriptions, his zoological descriptions, and probably he was, or his time would have been taken up writing those, I think, as opposed to recording, I think, the other elements of the voyages that Parkinson, obviously, he had a, a great interest in the languages um, as well, on the side, as well as doing his drawings, but as far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of any um, Journal of Salander in existence. Anyone else have a, a thought there? So something we can um, investigate in Sweden when we next go there, Loretta. I mean, I must, I must um, say, I think increasingly, I mean, it's with with online, with library catalogues, with, I think you know, a lot of the major collections now, we are able to find out a lot more what is within collections. But then you always find, I think, especially in the UK as well, with local. Um, museums or archives, you're always finding, you know, little bits and pieces as yeah. well. But I think the Swedes are quite ahead, yeah. <laughs> obviously with Linnaeus and everything, but I'm really not sure. I think with Salander as well, he was living with Banks, um, and especially when he um, died as well, he would have been in Soho Square. Um, so I think if there had been anything, it would have passed to Banks potentially, and then Brown, and then to the museums as we have the, um, the natural history stuff. So. in um, finding anything about it at all. He's been researching a lot about Salander and Tapia and their relationship. So if you could include them, that'd be really great. I think I've um, read about a letter, but um, at least some correspondence. Um, but yeah. 
Um, look, um, we probably have to wind up now because we've passed the time for morning tea and I'm sure everybody's looking forward to having a cuppa and, uh, and asking a few more questions and talking to our guests. So uh, thanks very much and please join me in thanking our visitors. Thank you. onto the desktop, is that alright? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Um, is it big or small, the file? Do you know? Okay, but small. We'll find out. Uh, it's a big file, it's best to transfer it directly to the computer, but from uh, down here, small ones are fine. Okay. Is it the first one? Mm -hmm. 
Hey, yeah, boy. If you could label it with the gentleman's name, please. Yes. Is it that PowerPoint one? Yeah, yeah. Slack it on the desktop. Good. It's not huge, it's fine. Yeah. I'll make sure it works before you leave. <laughs> no. It's only under a 75 meg. It should be, should be fine. Thank you. It's a pretty pretty fantastic mic. It works, so that's good. It's a good start. Michael? Graphic. Yeah, it's just loading. It's telling me that it's working. Or drawing mountains, I don't know what it would do. Site profile. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and when are you actually in the pro So what am I doing? So yeah, you're down here, you're 2.15 to 3. And I'm on for 3 o'clock. That's a bit long scissors, more than one of those other dudes. 45 minutes. But you can, you know, chuck questions in there. I'm sure you'll be fine. I don't know. I was just, I was just blown away that they only got 10 minutes longer. Yes, well. Spontaneously. It's probably my fault. Hey? That's probably my fault. Anyway. Don't we have a bell? It was <sighs> we should have had a little oh, horn. Ding. Yeah, the ding, the bell yeah. from the... Um... Got one at my office. It's what we press when we've had enough for the day. <laughs> and everyone looks at us and I'm like... Doing alright? Yeah? Yeah, it's going to be um, a long few months of this exhibition, but... Oh, I thought it was going to be years, because this conversation hasn't stopped again. Mm, well, for me, <laughs> then I'll be in the next exhibition trying to get events programs for that as well, so... Yeah. Yeah. It's good though, it's interesting. The thing that I frustrates me the most is I never get to see the events, because I'm always doing things, but at least we're videoing this one, so I'll actually get to watch it later. So that's a bonus, but yeah, so many of events that I check people in and they have a great time and then I'm running around and then they come out and they go, oh yeah, that was fantastic. I'm like, what cool. did you say? Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's, a, that's, my that's friend. it. Okay. Yep. I'm just going to run very, very quickly through the show. Double checks. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Two Mickey. Wow. Awesome. Big and tidy. Everything's Get working. Home. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, no. Ooh, is that all the images? Yeah. Oh, I know. Just, just, blank, blank just get rid of oh. that dude. Delete that dude. I'd like to delete it. Where's delete? Delete should be. Should be. Oh, you got rid of it? That's great. Okay. Double checks. Keep going. Yeah, no, no, leave that dude that, there. That's spooky. That's good spooky. Mm. <laughs> I'll extend that at conversation with Evans. <laughs> <laughs> Two mix. Keep going. Keep going. Just about there. After these dudes are finished. Keep going. 
Oh yeah, here comes the lollies. Here going. Awesome, because it's got to last for 45 minutes. Getting too much to think about. Overload. Architrack projection. To the museum inside out. And excellent. Just thank you for making me more jealous of your creativity and that I have none. Just to close that one up, I'll set it up to made some changes. Yep. Is that it? Yep. I will change the name of it and then that's will be good. Yes, Stuart's already taken it off onto the desktop. Is that you're editing the file on the desktop, are you? I think so. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you very much. See you later. So what do we have in the next session? Who do we have as far as PowerPoint? No, we're just going to let you go. No pressure. Okay. So which one's that one? That's the... Um, uh, Michael Toffrey. Michael Toffrey. Did I spell that right? That would be embarrassing if I spelled it wrong. T-U-F-F-E-R-Y. That'll do. Done. Okay. There okay. it is. Cool. Okay, now... My list of things to get cranky about. So we just need a holding slide for this next session, yeah? Uh, I've added many things to it, Pat. Trust me. Having a good day. Thanks. That's okay. Oh, what time do we start? Hmm. <laughs> this that file you sent me for the um uh, the painting, it's so high resolution that everybody's PowerPoint is <laughs> really slow. <laughs> PowerPoint doesn't like high resolution. Yeah. Anyway, it looks bloody good, but... <laughs> so what time are we kicking back off here? Eleven twenty-five. Good. Okay. Um, probably about quarter past. I will need um, people to put. See, see, this is the idea of how slow it is. I press click. Right. One elephant, two elephant, and I go backwards. One elephant, two, elephant, three. So I think I'll. Anyway, it's all right for the moment. Yeah. Um. Okay. We're good. So we've got seven or six for seven. this? Sorry? Seven. So um, six panels and then yeah. one moderator facilitator. Um, yeah. One of them. I'm being careful with the line. I think we just have two questions in one. Yes, we do have that. Yeah. Chris, where you go? So that's fine. So I'll put your two question marks right there. Thank you. And are we able to shut the curtains once they're all mic'd up? Just once they're all mic'd up. You don't want to have the curtains for this? Uh, for that up for this? Oh, maybe. Yeah, check it out. I guess we're not using a... Um, we're not using... Well, I'm not fussed either way. No, that's a good idea. Thank I'm you. just going to stay to myself for the moment. Oh, no, need them on panel. <laughs>